Okay, if you'll uh, take your Bible and open with me to the Gospel of Luke. We are in uh, Luke chapter 7, uh, verses 11 through 17. Uh, That is our uh, text. And if you uh, remember the the whole purpose, really, uh, why we're here, uh, the whole goal of our study of Luke is not just to become more smart or more uh, knowledgeable about uh, the Bible, though we definitely want that. We want to understand the meaning of what we are reading, we have to. Uh, that's not just good, that's, that's vital. But as we come to understand what Luke's telling us, we're praying as a result that God will take that knowledge and enable us to really uh, see Jesus. That's what we want. Uh, something supernatural, actually. And of course, we're not talking about something that uh, happens right here in front of us that we can see with our eyes right now. Now, that is uh, coming. When we talk about seeing Jesus, we're not talking about seeing Jesus physically uh, because uh, we know that's what's going to happen when we die or when uh, he returns. Uh, We're not talking about a physical sight of Jesus. We're talking about a, a spiritual one, a spiritual sight, meaning as we look at these stories about Jesus as Savior and this one specifically, that we want to not just learn some more information about Jesus being a great Savior, but to see him as our Savior and to know that in our heart, to be convinced of that. In other words, uh, to be sure and to be certain. I want you to go away, not just with some more facts about Jesus as Savior, but actually more confident, more certain, more sure that Jesus is the perfect Savior. And not just for this person that we are reading about here, but for you. I want you to know that Jesus is your Savior. What would it be like if you knew Jesus was your Savior? That's what I want for you. Which in a sense you would think would be easy enough. Uh, to see Jesus as this perfect Savior and to be amazed and to feel this peace and this confidence. For one thing, because he is amazing. We open up this gospel and Jesus does things nobody else can do. And we've got all kinds of advantages going for us as well. We're not on our own here. We have the Bible, we have the Spirit, We're here at church, we're interested in Jesus. You would think it would be easy enough for us to look at Jesus and to be amazed and be sure and be confident. And yet, unfortunately, we all know that too often it isn't. It isn't easy for us. We go through life with a lot of worry instead, a lot of uncertainty, uh, really noisy, really busy souls. One of the most common sins, fear, worry, anxiety, one of the most common commands, don't fear. Sometimes uh, the people who know Jesus as Savior and the people who don't, uh, the way they experience this world deep down, doesn't seem as different as you would hope. And it's not like the information part is so difficult either. I guess that's what I'm saying. We can get that pretty quick, the basics about Jesus and salvation. We come to church and we can learn all sorts of things about Jesus as Savior and how we're supposed to put our hope in him. 
In fact, that's been pretty much the point of every single sermon in uh, this series that we've been preaching on the Gospel of Luke so far. Week after week, Jesus came to save. Trust him. And it's a big salvation, too. We've been saying it's the total reverse of the curse we're talking about. You name the problem. Jesus came to provide a complete and total salvation. You just need to come to him in faith. That's like almost the whole point of the whole book. It's, it's not super complicated. Trust Jesus. He is the fulfillment of what the Bible teaches about salvation. And yet, no matter how many times we hear that and even know that intellectually, we aren't always super gripped by it. We aren't always like, whoa, Jesus is going to save me. It doesn't always seem to settle us in real life all the time. It, it's more like theory or something. And I'm sure there are lots of different reasons that we might, might give as to why. There probably are a lot of different reasons why, actually, it's not impacting us more deeply. But one reason for sure that we sometimes uh, fail to appreciate Jesus as Savior is because we look at our problems and they just seem uh, too big. Jesus and our problems, and our, our, our problems, they seem bigger. And so the question we have deep down is, is Jesus able to save me? Because we don't feel sure. And there is an answer to that question, definitely. We all know it, uh, I'm guessing. But we still ask the question, it's there. And it's the kind of question you sort of have to ask. In fact, if you haven't even asked it, maybe you haven't appreciated just how big your problems are. Because they are big. The, the problems we're saying we need Jesus to save us from. We're not just talking about whether Jesus is able to give you a better job or something. When we talk about salvation. We're talking about dealing with problems even bigger than that. Problems like death, actually. Death. If we just want to fast forward past all the smaller problems right to it, death. Sin and death and judgment. And you know, even if you don't think you have problems, if you're like, my life is so good, I have no, no problems, you have a problem. Even if you're in the top 1%, you have a problem. Because being in the top 1% doesn't stop you from dying. And it certainly doesn't stop you from facing the judgment of God. There is a day coming. You ever think about this? It's a little intense, but it's real. And so I'm going to say it. And it's not something we like to talk about, so it's a little uncomfortable. But there is a day coming when we are going to stop breathing. And at some point, someone's going to notice something's wrong here. And then maybe they're going to call someone and people are going to come running and they're going to gather around your body. And maybe it's going to be surprising to them. I don't know. Maybe they weren't expecting it. And so they are going to look at you and be like, what's wrong? What's wrong? And maybe they'll shake you. Wake up, wake up, wake up. And then someone's going to realize that's not working. They're going to put a finger on your pulse, and they're going to listen to see if you're breathing. 
and it's going to get all quiet, the room, and then someone's going to look up, and they're going to be like, he's dead. He's dead. And even if they don't believe it at first, they're like, no, 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 no. In the end, they're going to have to give in. It's going to get real, and they're going to have to take your body where you don't want to go, and they're going to put it in the ground, and people are going to come and cry, hopefully. Hopefully, they're going to cry. And they're going to shovel a dirt on top of your coffin, and then eventually, at some point, even if they don't want to, they're going to have to leave and go home and go on with their lives. And so that's a problem, obviously. We know it's a problem, and that's why we don't even like for me to say it. And you have to ask, you know, you have to ask, is Jesus able to deal with that? Is he? Because nobody else has been able to deal with that so far, fundamentally. I'm going to die. You're going to die. That is a problem. And after that, we stand before God, which because we're sinners is a bigger problem. And so we're not coming here and talking about small issues like whether Jesus is going to be able to help us buy a house. When we talk about our problems, we're talking about is Jesus able to take your dead body and give it life? This is uh, next level. Does he have that kind of power? Because if he doesn't, all this other stuff, who really cares, you know? And yet, if he does have that kind of power, now it's, it's like we almost have another problem. Did you ever think about that? It's almost like we have another problem. Because think about somebody with that kind of power. I mean, the power to raise a body from the dead. Because there's a lot people in this world can do. Some pretty amazing stuff. But I am telling you, you have never met someone who can do something like that. Someone with that kind of power. That kind of person is going to be extremely important in a class by himself, which maybe leads to another kind of question as we look at Jesus, another reason we sometimes feel unsure. Sometimes, and, and maybe most of the time, it's because we're looking at the problems outside of us and wondering whether or not Jesus is actually able to save us. But sometimes it's because we're looking at the problems inside of us. We look at our, ourselves and we're like, Maybe he could do it, but would he really want to? Why would he care about me? And I know that's not always the most pressing question on our hearts as Americans because we're told all the time how important we are. This is the land of kings. But even if we just stop and think realistically about how the world usually works with actual important, powerful people, I think we know this is a real question. Elon Musk, take Elon Musk as an example. Who thinks they can get an appointment with Elon Musk? You've got a problem. I don't think Elon Musk is really gonna care. And we wouldn't really expect him to. 
But you can, you can just go down the list of powerful, important people, and unless they are a politician who wants to get your vote, not hardly one of them is going to care enough to want to do anything for you, even if they are able. And so here with Jesus, we are talking about someone who we're claiming can single-handedly deal with the most significant and most fundamental problems in the universe. Problems like death, problems like sickness, problems like the environment, in a way that nobody else can. And so maybe you can see, if you think about it like that, how we can wonder, if he is really able to deal with those problems, is he going to be willing to save us, to save someone like me. Is he able? Great. But does he care? And that question probably only gets more intense if you were living back in Luke's day. We're studying the gospel of Luke. And that question, if you were living when he was writing this, would probably just be more real. Because for one thing, the, the general culture was not compassionate. So this was not a great time to be weak. It's never really a good time to be weak, but you definitely didn't want to be weak in, in Jesus' day. Might made right in the Roman Empire, literally. If you had the power to do something, you could basically do it. Powerful people didn't care about weak people, and people didn't expect them to. And so that would have made the gospel a little confusing. But on top of that, if you wanted to learn more, you didn't have most of the, the new... Testament to study, obviously, at that point, you had a part of the Bible we call the Old Testament instead. And if you're a Gentile and you pick that up and, and read it, it's going to seem to be mostly about these people we call the Jews. And so with people like Luke and Paul going around talking about Jesus and salvation, you might think, all oh, that sounds great. But you might also be asking, is this salvation really for someone like me? Are these guys getting this right? Is this, is this real? I see that he's able, okay, and you say that he's willing, but really, that's not how it works in my culture. Is that how it works in the Bible? Which, of course, is why Luke tells the stories he does. Like, for example, the story about the centurion, the story we looked at at the beginning of chapter 7. And it's funny because we call that story, verses 1 through 10, uh, the story about the centurion, but Luke's telling a story about Jesus healing someone. And so who would you think he would talk about the most? You would think he would talk about the person who gets healed the most, but he doesn't, does he? It is the servant that actually gets healed, but Luke focuses our attention on the centurion, not the servant. And that's because he's not a Jew, the centurion. He's a, a Roman centurion. And so this is kind of the point that Luke's trying to make, what he wants us to go away thinking about. He's showing us what Jesus is looking for, the kind of people Jesus is saving, and how he's saving them. And Jesus, as he goes about saving, is not looking for the same things most people are. He's not interested in whether you're worthy or how much money you have or power. Jesus is not impressed by all that. He's impressed instead by faith. It's his faith that Jesus talks about, the fact that he realizes who Jesus is and who he is, which is what Jesus wants. Hear that. Not all the other stuff. It's faith, which should give us some hope, I think. But still, we're pretty good at coming up with excuses for not trusting Jesus. And so maybe we might look at that story and be like, well, you know, that's good for the centurion. But he was important. I mean, he was a centurion. 
And even if Jesus wasn't impressed by the fact that he was someone who had power and, and, and who was rich, Jesus does say he had an awesome kind of faith, but that's not me. Uh, maybe you're telling yourself, that, that's not me. Nobody's going to look at my faith and be amazed. And plus, if we really want to get technical, and when we're hopeless, we can get pretty technical. And so we might think the servant was, was sick, which is a problem, but you know he's not dead. That is a, a bigger problem. And, and, and so again, is Jesus able to deal with that? Does he have the power? And is he willing? Does he care? That's what I want to know as I look down at Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. N need to know, really. Because look, this Christianity thing is not just a nice way to live or a, a good way to get by for a couple years. If that's all there is, there, there are, are definitely other options. The gospel claims to have the answer to your biggest problems, problems like death. And so you have to look at Jesus and ask, is he up for that? Can he do that? And would he? And the way Luke answers those questions here is by introducing us to someone who wasn't sure or certain. At least when Jesus first met her, she was hopeless. Luke 7, verses 11 and 12, we get a, a good look at the problem, first thing in this story. We meet a hopeless woman, a widow. That, that's the settings. Soon afterward, Luke tells us, and, and soon after what? Soon after he healed the centurion's servant. And Luke puts that there because these two stories are connected. Uh, the way Luke writes, he often tells stories in pairs. So not just one story, but two, two stories that are connected. Usually, actually, about a male and then a female. Luke tells a story about a man, and then you are like, wait for it, he's not done. And then he tells a story about a lady. And uh, you've got lots of examples of that, like Zachariah, then Elizabeth, or Simeon, then Anna. And you can go through the gospel like that, the centurion, and now this widow. And Luke puts this time marker here soon afterward as a way of highlighting that there's a connection between these two stories. Soon afterward, he says, he went to a town called Nain. And, and the word Nain sounds like the Hebrew word for pleasant. And apparently it was a really beautiful place, especially at this time of year, as all this was happening around spring when everything would have been becoming very green. It was located on the north side of a hill, Nain, uh, Mount Mora. And though Luke calls it a town, we'd probably call it a, a village because it was pretty small. About two or 300 people might have lived there. And it's actually the only time it's mentioned in scripture, Nain. Though there was a town on the other side of the hill, that is mentioned. And this isn't just trivia, it's kind of important. Because the name on, of the town on the other side of the hill was Shunem. And Shunem wasn't around in Jesus' day as far as I know, but the location was just about three miles from Nain. And the reason that's important is because that is the town where Elisha raised a woman's son from the dead. And so that kind of thing sticks in your town's history, right? Because that, that doesn't happen ever. And so if something like that happens in your town, you remember. Even though it happened about 800 years before, you have it there in the Bible. And something like that happens in a certain area, it matters to people. Like we may be a small town, but something big happened here. 
which may be part of why Jesus went here, because it was actually a kind of out of the way place, at least from where Jesus was. He had just been in Capernaum, and that was about 25 miles away. And so since Jesus walked, this would have been like an eight-hour walk, I would imagine, if you walk a little over three miles an hour. And it says soon afterwards, so we don't know exactly when he left. Some texts say the next day, but it's literally just the next in the Greek. So it could be the next day or just soon. But whichever, at some point, he starts walking toward Nain. And he doesn't do it alone either. Luke tells us he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And that is the the same language that he uses uh, later to describe the 5,000 people that Jesus fed, a great crowd. And so this is maybe like the size of a small marathon you've got walking alongside of Jesus. If you imagine, it must have been loud, uh, that many people walking together, and I'm thinking happy too. I mean, there is a reason these people are walking all this way with Jesus, and it's because they're excited. This is what you do when you see someone performing the kind of miracles Jesus was performing. You follow him in anticipation, like what is going to happen next, and and maybe even with a little bit of awe. And something is about to happen, and we would know that almost if we just read the beginning of verse 12 and stopped there, because Luke tells us, as he drew near to the gate of the town, which by itself is enough to tell us something's about to happen, if you're familiar with the way Luke works, because you, and actually the way the Bible works, because if you remember earlier, Jesus compared his ministry to the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, and he even talked about two specific stories, the story of Naaman, and then the story of Elijah and a widow at a place called Zarephath. And so a couple weeks ago, we looked at the first story here in Luke and saw the connection between that story about the centurion and the story of Naaman. And since Luke just connected that story with this one, and since he tells stories in in pairs, and since it's usually a story about a man and a woman, we should kind of know what's going to come next. It's going to be a story similar to the story about Elijah and that widow. And you know how the story of Elijah's relationship with that lady begins. Listen, 1 Kings 17. So Elijah arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there. And so we read about a city gate and a widow. We read about a well and a person in the Old Testament. What do we know is going to happen? This is a little bit of trivia. Somebody's about to get married. We read about, that's how the Bible works. (laughs) We read a story about a city gate and a widow, and it's not totally shocking. The next thing we read in Luke is, behold, Luke 7, verse 12 again, as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. And behold means look. It's almost like Luke is putting us in the position of the the crowd that day as this huge, happy crowd of people is walking alongside of Jesus. They get close to the gate of the town and suddenly they're confronted by another crowd that is coming toward them. But this group is not laughing. They are not happy. They are weeping because this is a funeral. But it's not a funeral exactly like the ones we're used to if you're gonna get the right picture. Because obviously in America, we have funerals and our funerals usually take, a little while, uh, take place a little while after 
the person has actually died. And when we have a funeral, there's a ceremony. Sometimes we've got rituals. And so what happens is that everyone comes to church usually uh, wearing black as a sign of mourning. I know this is different depending on where you live. But East Coast, at least back when I was younger, at the funeral, they would usually have the coffin there with the body inside. And uh, once in a while, they would even have an open coffin at the funeral ceremony at the church. But not afterwards, obviously, as they take the body to the grave, it's a closed coffin. You can't see the person. And it's, in, it's usually where I come from. It was usually in a special car. And so I haven't seen this as much West Coast. But East Coast, we would have a long line of cars that would drive to the graveside from the church, following the car with the coffin. And they would bury the body. And, and usually there's flowers and there's crying. But most of the time, it's quiet crying. Uh, if someone's really crying loudly, you might look at them and, and feel a little badly because people generally are trying to control themselves, even at funerals, they wanna seem strong. We gotta seem strong, which is not at all how it is going down here as Jesus comes near this crowd in Luke chapter seven, you have to understand. Because there are a couple similarities between our funerals and theirs, like the fact there was a group of people there, Luke calls it a considerable crowd. At the end of verse 12, a considerable crowd was with her, and there's a dead body, of course, and there's something to carry it in, though it's not a coffin, it's a bier. That's what Luke calls it in verse 14, which was like this little platform people would use to transport the body to the grave. And there were people mourning, too, like there are at our funerals, but that's about all they have in common, actually, because back then, for starters, it would have been happening almost right away, the funeral. So the body would have usually been buried within like 24 hours. When, when somebody died, you weren't taking a long time. They die, and as soon as you're sure, almost, you start getting them ready to be buried. And you have to prepare. So you lay the body on the floor, and you, you wash the body, and you dress the body, and they had this whole process. You would cut the hair and the nails, and you make sure the body looks good. And then you let people know, and uh, everyone in your village was expected to come to the funeral. Uh, this was a community event. And so you would sit there on the floor, next to the body in your house, usually just moaning. This widow that we're reading about, this is probably how she started her day. And then some of your friends and neighbors would come to comfort you, and eventually they would take the body, they would put it on a plank of wood, that's the beer, and whoever would carry the body, they would take their shoes off before they pick up the plank as a way of showing respect. And then they would take the body outside the house uh, and actually outside the town as well, because you couldn't have graves within the city limits since they thought dead bodies were unclean. And there would be this whole crowd of people coming along. You might picture them coming out of their houses as you're walking down the street, because the culture, you saw this going on, you would stop what you were doing and you would join in. That was expected, that was normal. You didn't do that, you were a bad person. And in Galilee, where Jesus was from, if you think about this procession of people that's walking out of town to the graveside, the mother would be out front. That is different than actually how they did it in Judea, but that's how they did it in Galilee. The, the mother would be out front before the body, and then the body on the bier, and after that, the friends, and then behind them, usually there would be professional mourners. I don't know if they had that in as small a town as Nain, but... I don't know that they didn't, uh, because this was an actual profession back in Jesus' day, mourning. It was like a job. There's even an Old Testament passage that says, call for the mourning women to come, send for the skillful women to come. And so there were women who were skilled 
in weeping and crying. They were good at it. And you wanted them there at the funeral because crying loudly was a way of showing respect to whoever died. Even if you were poor and you didn't have a lot of money, most people you expected you would hire at least one woman to cry for you. But I don't know if this lady here in Luke 7 needed to hire anyone because I would imagine everyone was already pretty much wailing for her, partly because that's what you did at funerals, but also partly because in their mind she had lost almost everything. This woman, she was a hopeless woman. I mean, we know just having someone die is difficult. We know what it's like to, to lose someone, but this is not just someone to this woman. This is, this is her son, and it's not just her son. It's her only son. The way Luke puts it, as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And it's not just her son she lost either. She's already lost her husband, Luke says, and she was a widow. And so it just keeps getting sadder. As someone said, this is just about the saddest funeral you can imagine. To have a son meant everything in the ancient Near East. The, the relationship between a mother and a son was a really big deal in that culture. In fact, there's an interesting test they have done. I don't know if you could call it a test research, but they asked people from our culture, from my culture at least, okay, you're on a boat, and you have uh, your daughter, your wife, and your mother, and they're all with you, and your boat's sinking, and you can only save one person. Who do you save? Most people from my culture say their wife or their daughter, obviously. But they've asked the same question of people from the Near East, and this is even today. And without fail, almost 100%, they say, my mother. There's a special bond or responsibility that a son has to his mother, which is why having a son was such a big deal for a woman. Even in the Bible, if you think about the way Hannah wept because God hadn't given her any sons, she cried so much that her husband came to her and had to say, aren't I worth more to you than 10 sons? And she, that didn't help. She kept crying. So obviously she didn't think so. Or Naomi, too, after she lost her husband and son. She's going back to where she's from, and when people see her, she's like, please don't call me Naomi anymore. Uh, call me Mara, which means bitter. It's like losing her sons changed her identity so deeply that she needed a new name for herself when she went back to her home. Don't say hi, Naomi. Say hi, bitter. Jeremiah the prophet, when he tells people how they ought to mourn when their city comes under attack, he says, put on sackcloth and roll in ashes, mourn with bitter wailing as for an only son. And so it doesn't get much deeper than this. This is deep, deep pain this woman is experiencing. And it's not just painful, it's frightening. Because who's going to provide for her now? Who's going to care for her now? Her son was like her health insurance, her retirement, her identity, all wrapped up in one. And now she had lost all that and had entered into a kind of living death, basically. And so this is one hopeless woman. And in a sense, really, she is a picture of the hopelessness of this world. As you look at this woman crying, I think, there's a sense you can say that's kind of life, you know? It's sad. As I get older, the more I realize life is sad. I didn't get that when I was young. I was a pretty optimistic kid, I think. But you can't miss it as you get older, even if you are an optimist. Life is sad. 
And so sometimes you can pretend and, and you know, try to fool yourself that your problems aren't that big and that we can fix everything as humans. Go America, we can do this, but we can't. I mean, we've got hospitals, we've got vaccines, we can take a heart out of a body and put it back, but we cannot fix death. And this is where we all end up. And nobody can really help us. Even you look at Luke 7, and you've got this whole crowd coming from this town, standing there with this lady, and I'm sure they all wanted to be helpful, and they looked at what was happening to her, and they thought this was terrible, and yet none of them, not one of them, can do anything to fix the problem this woman was facing. All they can do is stand there and cry. But not Jesus. Not Jesus. And this is where it starts getting exciting because first Luke shows us the problem as we look at this hopeless woman. And then second, Luke shows us the solution as we watch this compassionate king go to work because it's clear he's a king in this story. He has authority. And while he's standing at the gate of the city with everyone else, he's not responding like everyone else. Look down, what does he do exactly? The first thing he does is see her. He sees her, verse 13, and that's huge. When the Lord saw her, took notice of her, you could say, really paid attention to her, which I know maybe doesn't stand out to you at first, but even just practically, there are a lot of people swirling around. Jesus has a crowd with him. And the widow has a crowd with her. And so there are a lot of things for Jesus to be looking at. This is like sensory overload. <laughs> I mean, he could be looking at, at the body. He could be looking at the people crying. He could be looking at the town ahead. He could be thinking about wherever he was going. He had just walked 25 miles. But whoever was relaying the story to Luke noticed one thing, and that is that Jesus was looking intently at this weeping widow. He saw her. It's not just important people, centurions, that Jesus sees. It's widows, which you would think would be normal, but isn't in this world. It is not normal for important people doing important things to see those who are vulnerable and those who are needy, even now, after the compassionate revolution that Jesus brought into the world. The people who need the most help are usually the people who get the least help. This is so real, especially, especially if they had anything to do with the problem they're experiencing, you know? That's like the first out of important people, at least. I would help you, but you kind of brought this on yourself. And we know it wasn't probably this widow's sin specifically that caused her son to die, but if we go back when it comes to our problems and think about the problem of death, Jesus could have said that about us, for sure, not just her, all of us, because we're actually the ones who brought these problems on ourselves, even a problem like death. If you go back, there's death because there's sin, and there's sin because man chose to rebel against God. And so as one author wrote, if there had never been any sin, there never would have been any death, any 
funerals, any tears. This is the source of all our sorrow, our sin, our rebellion. And so as you look at this widow weeping, you can't just think about the body lying there. You have to think about what ultimately caused it, and that's sin and God's wrath on account of man's sin. And so I think it's legitimate for us to be asking as we think about death and the problems associated with it, does God care? Why would he care if we did this to ourselves? And the answer, looking at Jesus, I'm saying, is that he does. He does care. How do we know? Look at him looking at this widow. He sees her. And you can add to that, actually. Even just the fact that he's there in the first place shows that he cares because Nain is in the middle of nowhere. And so you kind of have to wonder why Jesus went there after healing that centurion's servant. Why did Jesus go on a 25-mile walk to this tiny little town? Because you look at the text and you see it doesn't really give one a reason. And so I don't know any reason, really, that he went on that walk that day except to meet this widow. He is there for her. It's like he set up this appointment. This is orchestrated. This is planned. Where it happened, when it happened, Jesus sees, Jesus cares, Jesus feels. He feels. Luke says, verse 13, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And this is one of the main things that Luke wants you to see. He had compassion. And we know that's important for one thing, because as you read this story, you're supposed to compare and contrast it with the story in the Old Testament about Elijah and the widow. That's a good to know Bible study technique. When there are two stories that are really similar especially when the author points you back to the previous story like Luke did, you need to read both and look at what's the same and then especially what is different. And there are two things that are really different about the story with Jesus and Elijah. And the first is just his compassion. The particular word Greek, uh, the particular Greek word Luke uses is a really graphic word and basically means that Jesus felt for this woman deep down in his gut. He sees this woman weeping and he is emotionally moved which is awesome in and of itself, but is maybe even more significant when you think about how we know that Jesus felt compassion that day. How do we know that, that Jesus felt this? I once heard somebody ask a really obvious question, and yet I think it's a pretty good one to think about. And that is, how do we know, sitting here 2,000 years, ago, 2000 years later, that Jesus felt compassion? And this is one of the times when those, uh, one of those times when the answer is so obvious, you're afraid to say it. We know Jesus felt compassion because Luke tells us. But how did Luke know? And our instinct is to answer that question by saying the Holy Spirit, and I'm sure that's part of it. But can you remember how Luke says he put this gospel together? Back at the beginning, he says he talked to eyewitnesses. And so Luke wasn't there that day with Jesus in Nain, but there was someone who was. And I think Luke talked to him. And the person who was there who told Luke this story was so struck by the way Jesus was responding to this woman. There was something about Jesus that he could see that made it so clear he was feeling deeply for her to the point that it somehow stuck with that person who was telling Luke years later you know, Jesus saw this woman, and he felt compassion, Luke. He was moved. 
which must be something that God really wants us to see about Jesus in general, because this is the word that's most frequently used to describe his emotional life in the Gospels, compassion. In fact, someone said, if you want to sum up the whole of Jesus's ministry in regards to us, you might use the phrase, and he was moved with compassion. And that compassion moved him to act. And this is part of what I love about Jesus, because he doesn't just feel something here. He, he does something. Verse 13, Luke says, and when the Lord saw her, and remember that, we're going to come back to that. But Luke says, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not cry. Which is a little bit of a surprise if you think about it. <laughs> because it almost sounds like the worst possible thing to say to someone who is grieving. And for us, it probably would be, honestly. If we saw someone who lost their son and we come to their funeral and uh, they're on their way, maybe you're at the graveside, they're about to bury their only son, and we go up and say, stop crying. That wouldn't be appropriate at all. In fact, you would probably wonder, how, how would that ever be appropriate to say to someone like, like this? At what point could you ever say that? What do you think? How could Jesus tell her not to cry if he was compassionate? Well, when can you tell someone not to cry about something ever? You can tell someone not to cry about something when you know more than they do about how it's going to turn out, when you know everything's going to be all right. And so maybe, for example, if your daughter cries because she wants to go to the grocery store and you, you say you can't take her because you're planning on taking her to a surprise birthday party instead, and she doesn't know that. And so she starts to cry when you say you can't go to the grocery store. You can tell her, look, honey, please don't cry. Why? Because it's going to be all right. It's actually going to be better, which is what makes Jesus such a great savior because Jesus sees us hurting. He does. He knows. He feels. He cares. But he doesn't just care. He doesn't just feel. He acts. He can do something to change the situation. And to prove that, Luke tells us here, he came up and touched the beer, and the bearer stood still, stood still, stopped. In other words, they were moving, apparently, as all this was happening. I guess probably uh, they didn't know who Jesus was, or they just saw this big crowd, and so they're trying to march on through. When suddenly Jesus just comes up and he touches the plank on which the dead boy's lying, and they stop immediately. They stood still. And I kind of picture, in my mind, everyone standing still, like everyone frozen if this was a movie. And the camera focusing on Jesus and the dead boy. This is Jesus versus death. This is a moment. And he's just so kingly, Jesus, because here's this huge crowd, you know, and all this commotion. And he just stops everyone. How? He doesn't shout. He's not dancing around. No, he just walks up to where the boy is lying and he touches the beer. And you get the feel, you know, that a confrontation is about to take place. This is a serious moment. We're about to witness something. Normally, actually, the way it worked in those days, you met a procession of people who were on their way to bury their dead, and you had to just join in. And so if they're coming at you as you're going that way, it's like you would turn and start to follow them which was a picture, I think, for us, like death wins. <laughs> death is headed this way, and you know what? You meet death, there's not much you can do about it, except just turn around and join with everyone else who's crying. But not Jesus, that's the thing. Again, he takes death 
head on. He touches this beer and it's like everything stands still because a dramatic confrontation is about to take place, as one pastor writes. A collision between life and death. An unstoppable force was meeting a seemingly immovable object. The grieving had come out to bury their dead, but when the funeral met Jesus, death had to stop in its tracks. Everyone else had to follow the procession, but Jesus had the authority to bring it to a halt. When he put out his hand, it was as if to say, death, you will come this far, but no farther. And look at his power. This is not just words. Verse 14, Luke tells us, and he came up and touched the beer and the bear stood still and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. Which again, if you just, Think about that. It seems like another funny thing for Jesus to say. First, he tells a weeping widow not to cry at her own son's funeral. And then next, what does he say? He tells a dead man to get up. You want to say this in a funny way from the perspective of someone who was there watching it happen. You can imagine someone telling one of their friends later, I don't know, it was, Jesus looked at this lady and all of us crying and he was like, uh, you know what, I, I, I see everyone's upset, but I'm not sure what the big deal is here. Uh, you don't need to cry. Okay, you know, let me just go over and talk for a moment with the boy. Has anybody talked to him? I mean, I see everybody crying, but has anybody talked to him? Somebody should talk to him. Let me talk to him. Young man, you hear me? Young man, I think it's about time you get up. Like, you know, he had just overslept or something. But he haven't overslept or something. He's dead. He's dead. And so if Jesus were just another ordinary person, you look at this and pretty much everything he's done so far would have been wrong if he made a list. First of all, you don't tell a weeping widow not to cry. And then you don't say that to a dead body either in the middle of a funeral. Get up. But Jesus is not just an ordinary person. Hear me now. And we know that because verse 15, that dead man sat up and began to speak which again is just awesome and has to be one of my favorite verses because dead men don't sit up and they definitely don't talk. And I think it's funny because I'm not sure what actually he's talking about at this moment. What do you say when you've been dead and you wake up outside in the middle of a crowd? You're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. maybe he was confused. How did, how did I get here? Where am I? What's, what's going on? What's going on is that death met Jesus and Jesus wins. That's what's going on. And it's not even really a struggle for him, which is probably the second thing that's different about this story and the one about Elijah, if you do the compare and contrast. First of all, it's the compassion, but second, it's the way they heal the dead person, because for Elijah, he's got this whole process, and Elijah has to call upon the Lord. It says that there. He called upon the Lord, and he has to stretch out over the boy three times, and he has to keep calling out to the Lord, please let this boy live, but not Jesus. Jesus doesn't have to do any of that. He just tells the boy to get up, and he does. When Jesus spoke, the dead obeyed, which is probably why in this story, Luke doesn't just call him Jesus. He calls him Lord. He's like, you know what? I can't hold back anymore. Verse 14, he says, when the Lord saw her, Lord, God, obviously God, because what does it take to bring a dead body back to life? It takes the power of God, which is why when Elijah wants to raise that boy from the dead, he calls out to the Lord. And yet Jesus doesn't have to. You know why? Because he is the Lord. And so you look at your problems and they are big. Like the fact you are going to die. 
Jesus is able to help you, and he is willing. The gospel is some really good, seriously good news. I sometimes don't get to believe that. I, I sometimes don't believe that I get to be saying this every week, you know, because it's, it's not just sort of like patting you on the back and saying, be happy. You, the Bible is so realistic. It's not like, oh, everything's great. Be nice to people. No, the gospel shows us life as it is, weeping widows, desperate centurions. It's like, stop fooling yourself because there are problems you face in this world that you have absolutely no power over. You cannot do anything about them, like the fact you're gonna die and then stand before God. And so really, it's a little like you're tied to the train tracks as you live life. And the train is coming. And the railway ties are rattling. And no one has the power to break those chains. You're lying there, and they're all looking at you, and they see it's going to happen, and they're crying, and maybe they're grabbing the chains. They can't cut them. They're trying to comfort you, perhaps, or distract you, whatever, but they can't take the chains off. They can't deal with the fundamental problem. No one can except Jesus. He can. That's what the gospel says. He's able. It's not difficult for him. And he's willing. He sees. He feels. He cares. He acts. For who? Not just the powerful. For weeping widows in out-of-the-way places. This is why he came into the world. He came into the world not just to save this dead boy back then, but to provide a complete and total salvation for people who need it. Even more specifically, for people who know they need it. Even for Gentiles like this Roman centurion who come to him in faith, and even for people society overlooks who have nothing to offer like this weeping widow here in Luke 7. And you know what? If we believe that, if we see that, if we see that, I'm telling you, it demands a response. It demands a response from us. This is more than just information you're getting today. You have a savior, Jesus. And your savior can actually save. And that should do something in you. It definitely did something in the crowd that day. Look at verse 16. We saw the problem first when we looked at the hopeless woman. We saw the solution as we looked at the compassionate king. And now let's look at the response by checking out the awestruck audience, verse 16. Luke says, fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole country of Judea and all the surrounding country, which totally makes sense. It's like, of course, because this is how you respond when you see someone raise a man from the dead. First of all, you get scared because <laughs> Luke says fear seized them. And then second, you praise. He says they glorified God because they, they knew it. this didn't just happen by itself. This was saying something about Jesus. And being from that area, they knew what it was saying because they had seen something like this before. They had something to compare it to and contrast it with. And so they say a great prophet has arisen among us, which was a start. Yeah, he's a great prophet, but it gets better. Next line, God has visited his people. 
And so they responded to what they saw with fear, with praise, and then really with witness. They start talking with everyone they met, verse 17. This report concerning him went out all over Judea and in the surrounding countryside. And I'm saying, you know, you know what? This is the kind of response Jesus deserves. Awe, worship, and evangelism. And if it's not there, if that's not there as we're reading our Bibles and these stories, we need to pray. God, help me to see Jesus, to actually see him. I need a supernatural work in my heart. Because I know this is not like difficult information for us to understand intellectually. We come and hear all the time, Jesus can save, Jesus can save, and we believe it. But do we believe it, you know? Do we actually believe it? We want to have a work of God in our hearts so that we are sure, so sure that when we talk about Jesus, we, we are convinced we're talking about someone who has the ability to take your dead body and give it life, to raise you from the dead. Because long term, this is part of the salvation that God's promising, and it's going to be better than what happens to this widow's son, because eventually he died again. And so this was just a short-term fix, and Jesus has come to provide a long-term solution to defeat death once and for all. It's part of why he died and rose again, not just so that it would end there, but so that one day he can return and bodies are going to start flying up out of the grave. And he's going to reunite those bodies with their souls and change those bodies into the kind of bodies that will never die again. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine if we believe that? What kind of peace, what kind of certainty we would have? How would that change us? What does a person whose body is going to come flying out of the grave again and be transformed into a body that will live forever in the presence of God worry about? How do you scare someone like that? How would that change us as a church if we believe Jesus is able to do that? Because this story says Jesus is able to do that. He speaks and death listens. And Jesus is willing to do this. He feels compassion. So won't you run to him if you're not a believer? Jesus is the perfect savior. And though he has every right to judge you, to punish you, though you have sinned time and time again, and what you deserve is, is, is not just death, but eternal death, eternal punishment, he's willing to save you. He's willing to rescue you. He sees you. He knows. He cares. If you'll just turn from your sin and run to him. And if you're a believer, won't you trust him now? Now, what would it look like for you to be sure of that? What would it look like for you to be really sure that Jesus is able to save you from your deepest, most significant problem, that he's able to provide salvation from death? salvation from sin, and that he's willing. Let's pray that God helps us be certain. And it starts with really seeing Jesus. May he open the eyes of your heart that you might behold him and be transformed by what you see.